That's Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We haven't needed help this week, have we, to believe that the world is broken. Even before Thursday, I was struck by the amount of ill health in the part of the church family that I serve. COVID restrictions may have been lifted. We don't have to isolate. But we have by no means entered a utopia, have we? And then overnight on Wednesday night, as Putin delivered his sinister address and ordered his forces into Ukraine, we haven't needed help this week to remember that the world is broken. And the question that every Christian has to wrestle with is why is it like that? Why is the world so broken? In fact, the question is more pointed than that. Is it God's fault? Is God to blame for the state of the world? To put it most starkly, is God bad? We have to wrestle with it personally, but increasingly we find ourselves confronted with that accusation from friends and colleagues, don't we? Increasingly, the God of the Bible is seen as a bad God, a morally reprehensible spoiled sport who deprives us of that which is good. A friend of mine said to me that she doesn't believe in God, and not just because she doesn't believe there's enough proof, but because she dislikes the God of the Bible. She wants him not to exist. Maybe that's your perspective here this evening. I'm sure it's one that we've all come across. Is God bad? And it puts us off reaching out, doesn't it? It puts us off talking about God's. It puts us off introducing our friends to this God for fear of what they might think of us. It certainly makes me slower to talk about God with that friend that I just mentioned. We're about to go into a week of events designed to share the message of Jesus with friends and colleagues. But as Tom said a few minutes ago, we can feel nervous about what people might think, the offense they might take. 
I guess some of us are slightly resistant to the idea of making clear that we align with the God of the Bible. Is God bad? It was a question that the original hearers of Genesis needed to hear as much as we do. The origin stories of Genesis 1 to 4 would have been floating around in the consciousness of God's people for hundreds of years before they were written down here. But Jesus identifies the human author of the first five books of the Bible as Moses, the great leader of God's people at the time of the Exodus. That's why Luke has referred to Moses as the author of this book over these last few weeks. And so I find it helpful to think of this being read by the people of Israel as they made their way through the desert and into the land of Canaan. Those original hearers of Genesis were constantly tempted to doubt the goodness of God's and to go after other gods. You can see it throughout their history. And as they entered the promised land, as they faced new challenges, as they were exposed to new temptations and foreign gods, they, like us, needed to hear the goodness of God's. Tonight, we're diving into the meat of Genesis as we come to Moses' first major section. Our passage opens with that phrase, these are the generations of which is a kind of boundary marker that keeps coming up uh, in Genesis. You can see on the handouts on the sheet you were given by the door uh, where it introduces each of the major sections of the whole book. And so if the the past few weeks in Genesis 1 have been the prologue, a forward, an aperitif, if you like, this week Moses begins with his first major section, running from 2 verse 4 through to the end of chapter 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Here's the first section, says Moses. Foundational history, the history of the heavens and the earth. Lessons about the origin of it all. That's why we've called this series Origins, the Ultimate Story of Life and Death. This is the foundational history that we need to understand if we're going to understand anything that comes next. As William often calls it, this is key stage zero the most foundational lessons for understanding life and for understanding our place in the world. And like in the rest of Genesis, one of the big lessons we're going to see in this section is that God is good. That the brokenness of this world, the evil in the world, are not a denial of God's goodness. On the contrary, they stem from our failure to recognize his goodness that far from blaming God for the broken world that we live in, far from concluding that God is bad, from the very beginning, the world that God created was a testimony to his wonderful goodness. And that's our first heading this evening. The Lord God gave humanity a bountiful world. Now look again at verse four with me. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life And the man became a living creature. Uh, Just as back in chapter one, when at the beginning, the spirit was hovering over the waters of a formless void. 
Uh, So again, we're given a picture of a barren, formless void covered in water. Uh, Verse 6 tells us of a mist, or according to the footnote, a spring, perhaps even a flood, was going up from the land and was watering all the face of the ground. Uh, It's just like the beginning of chapter 1. Here is another opportunity to understand creation, only with a slightly different emphasis this time. Uh, Lots of people get upset about the differences between uh, chapters 1 and chapter 2, as though they reflect some sort of problem in the writing or a scientific impossibility. But as Luke pointed out a couple of weeks ago, these passages are carefully crafted literary pieces designed to teach a point. It would be inappropriate to come to this chapter with chronological questions that it's not actually built to answer. Uh, Rather than getting upset about our questions of chronology, we're much better off paying attention to the particular emphasis that Moses underlines for us. I think actually we'll find that they're very similar accounts indeed. But Moses does have a particular emphasis for us. And the first thing to note is the hero of the story, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. The Lord God. Throughout chapter 1, God was simply referred to by his title, God, Elohim, the uncreated creator. But as we move into chapter 2, he is called the Lord God bringing together that relatively rare combination of his title, God, Elohim, and his covenant name, the Lord, Yahweh, the name that he gave to his people as he drew into relationship with them. Although our Bibles doesn't show it, don't show it very clearly, that combination is exceptionally rare in Scripture. But here in chapter 2, Moses wants to show us that the powerful creator God is the relational God of Israel. It's a statement that the powerful creator God is our God, uh, the God who has relationship with us. Uh, That might be why you get a more intimate picture of the creation of humanity in verse 7. Verse 7 again, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Not merely made in his likeness, as in chapter 1, but filled with the very breath of God, the the very first kiss of life. The hero of the story is the Lord God, our God, our God in relationship with us, and a God who's provided a bountiful world to live in. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he'd formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Out of that flooded wasteland that we came across in verses five and six, God builds this luscious garden complete with every kind of tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. And that's not just about species, diversity, for those who are into all of the eco-obsessions, It's about providing bountifully. It is about providing pleasant sights and good food. Even the name Eden means pleasure. I think of the most beautiful trees and the tastiest fruits. Willow trees, oak trees, the great American redwoods, pear trees, peach trees, passion fruit trees, pine trees, apple trees, pineapple trees. And there in the center the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
as we'll come to more in later weeks. Out of this flooded wasteland, a bountiful garden. Now, we've got a little bit of an illustration of this with our modern-day Eden project, don't we? Perhaps you know about that Cornwall attraction, which opened about 20 years ago. An old clay pit, which had been left derelict uh, for years, was turned into an extraordinary visitor attraction, centered around two great artificial biomes and becoming home to a vast array of plant life. Since it was opened, it's been used as a filming location for James Bond, a Live 8 concert series, and it is the home, apparently, of the World Pasty Championships. So now you know where you need to go. All these years of not knowing. There you go. Uh, but its main attraction is its extraordinary ecological transformation from this derelict clay pit to a horticultural wonder teeming with plant life. It now draws in, in a normal year, a million visitors. And the idea has spread across the world with Eden projects now planned in China and Costa Rica and even in Morecambe in Lancashire. It is, in a small way, a picture of Eden, a derelict wasteland, transformed into a bountiful garden. Uh, but it's not just the trees. Look on to verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Uh, the name of the first is the Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. Uh, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Sort of description that you just got to read through and go, well, thank you, Moses. That was interesting, but I don't really know why that's there. Uh, but he's clearly interested in the names, isn't he? So let me read it again with the names translated. A river flowed out of Eden, or pleasure, to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Increase. At verse 13, the name of the second river is the Bursting Forth. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Rapid, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Fruitfulness. And now you might think I'm reading too much into this. You can tell me later. But I think they dovetail so well with the Bountiful Garden of verse 9. Uh, increase, bursting forth, rapid fruitfulness. Uh, they're a picture of lavish richness. And verse 12 does that as well, doesn't it? The gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. Now, we, you don't really need to know uh, much about precious stones to see that you've got rich jewelry there in the Garden of Eden, which tells us more about the lavish richness of the place. But I think it's more than that. As many commentators have observed, they show something of the glory of God's presence. Uh, Gordon Wenham, for example, has pointed out that paradise in Eden has a symbolism suggestive of the presence of God. Uh, precious metals and shining gemstones communicating how glorious it is to be in Eden, in the presence of God. That's certainly how those ideas come up later. Indeed, when God commissions a model of his presence in the tabernacle and the temple, these same elements of Eden's riches feature prominently. This isn't just a garden. This is the Lord's garden where the Lord God dwells. A bountiful, exuberant, rich garden with rivers cascading down the mountain of his presence, 
flowing through a garden of rich treasures and gloriously abundant trees and out into the world. And it's there, in that garden, that the Lord God puts man. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of pleasure. In the midst of his presence, pitched in his own back garden, if you like, surrounded by his rich provision. Now, of course, we don't dwell in Eden anymore. But don't we still get to see the lavish character of God, even through the splinters of a world that is broken, as we see all around us, and as we'll come to see more in coming weeks, we can still see clear evidence of God's goodness to us. Here at the start of the Bible, we're reminded that every single thing we're given is a gift from him. I just pause and think about his gifts to us. There's another one. Did you spot it? That intake of breath that you weren't really thinking about? A carefully crafted gift of the Lord to you at exactly the right time when you really did need it. A Christian friend of mine objects to the phrase, God was really kind to me yesterday. Because it implies that God stepped out of his character to be kind to us. When actually he's always kind. We're just slow to appreciate it. And even more than the gifts, this same creator God has chosen to have relationship with us. The Elohim creator God is Yahweh, the Lord, our God. The God who created a garden for humanity that we might be in his presence. And the God who has continued to draw humanity into relationship with him ever since. Just as we are today, evidence. The Lord God gave humanity the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Pleasure. A massive testimony to his goodness. But Moses says more than that. We also get the huge privilege of spreading that testimony across the world. That takes us to point two. The Lord God gave humanity a privileged purpose. I look again at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And now that's a sentence that's attracted a huge amount of debate, a massive range of ideas of what that means for us today. Uh, is this the beginning of the Bible's encouragement to go green? A uh, kind of eco-pledge from the Lord? We often get in a mess because we don't pay attention to the context. But verse 5 has already set it up for us. Verse 5 again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. As you see, at the beginning, there's no garden. There's no garden because it hadn't rained, humanity wasn't there, and all they had was this mist or flood that was indiscriminately flooding the whole face of the ground. In the beginning, there was no man to work the ground, so there was no garden. And so the world was deprived of all the wonderful things that we've just been listing. But then God crafted this beautiful garden, this testimony to his goodness, and he planted every tree, and he channeled those waters into these four bulging rivers. And then he took the man, 
the one into whom he had breathed the breath of life, his image bearer. And he set him in the midst of it all and said effectively, right, your turn. Work the garden and keep it. And not just look after what's already been built. Rather, I think the sense is keep building the garden. If you remember back to chapter 1, verse 28, humanity's commission was to be fruitful and and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. The sense was across the whole world. The dereliction of 2 verse 5 was still true of vast reaches of the world, of the open country beyond Eden. And so the man's commission to, uh, to work the garden and keep it, well, that is to keep the garden growing, uh, to spread it across the whole world, to make sure the whole world is covered with this testimony to the goodness of God. Indeed, it's not just to work it, but to keep it, to watch it, to guard it, to make sure nothing unclean enters it, to ensure this testimony to the goodness of God is not corrupted or compromised by anything. In fact, I think that's what's going on in verses 16 and 17, but we'll have to say more about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, Verse 15 is not an arbitrary pair of instructions in the middle of Genesis 2, but a commission to be human, to spread the knowledge of God by spreading this garden across the world. This is the purpose that God has privileged humanity with, to spread the knowledge of his goodness. It is, as others have rightly said, the most human thing you can do. And it fits so well with what we were seeing a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1. Having made humans in God's image, he commissioned them, 1 verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And we saw back in chapter 1, that wasn't so much about ecological projects, but about being his image bearers, spreading a knowledge of him around the world. Uh, Maybe we were already meant to be thinking about the commission to be fruitful and multiply as Moses named the rivers, increase and fruitfulness, thundering through the garden. But when it comes to working the garden and keeping it, surely we're thinking of subduing the earth and having dominion, aren't we? In other words, this is another reminder of God's commission to his image bearers to spread a knowledge of him around the world. And not just any old gods. This time it's not the generic title for God, Elohim. No, specifically the Lord God. Our God. Our good God. Who has given us the privilege of expanding this testimony to the goodness of God around the world. And you're never more human than when you're engaged in that Eden project. Uh, The Eden Project that I mentioned earlier was conceived of by Tim Smith, a man famous for two main things, I think, his work on the Eden Project and the fact that his name is a palindrome. Uh, Tim Smith is the same forwards and backwards. There you go. Uh, But he's most interesting to us for his explanation of the project. In the beginning, he says, which is an interesting thing to talk about with Eden, but there you go, in the beginning... The idea was very simple. Let's take a place of utter dereliction and create life in it. Uh, Which is Genesis 2, isn't it? That when there was no bush of the field, uh, yet in the land, the Lord God planted a garden. Uh, But Tim Smith goes on. Uh, The idea was simple. Let's take a place of utter dereliction and create life in it. 
and in that place also demonstrate how clever humans are. And there you can see he's missed the point. Of course, it is remarkable to have built that project out of a clay pit. It is a glimpse of the enduring capability of humanity to work the garden and keep it. But the real Eden project was about spreading the knowledge of God. The creation of life in a place of dereliction was meant to be a testimony to God's greatness, not ours. The purpose of humanity is to proclaim knowledge of him, not us. I was going to spend some time as we turn to implications, talking about the dignity and purpose that this gives to humanity and to our work. Work is not a result of the fall, the brokenness of this world. And no work was part of God's good design in paradise, an element of his bountiful provision for us. It gives work a huge amount of dignity, and it gives us as humanity a huge amount of dignity to be entrusted with this privileged purpose. And all those things are true, and please take some time to think about them later. Uh, We are given profound dignity as humans, and we'll think a bit more about that next week. Our work does have profound dignity. But the danger is that we can make Genesis 2 all about us. We can fall into the same trap as Tim Smith, as though Moses wants us celebrating ourselves at the end of the passage. But no, we're not the heroes. God is. The Lord God. And with everything else that's going on in the world, we need that reminder, don't we? As the crisis worsens in Ukraine and the pandemic rumbles on, or as our friends look at us with shock when we say that we trust the God of the Bible, really, you believe in him? That morally reprehensible spoil sport who deprives us of what is good? Well, no, I don't believe in that sort of God. I believe in the God of the Bible, the God who is good bountifully generous, that even still today, we need to remind one another of the goodness of God shining through the splinters of this broken world. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the God who draws us into relationship with him. Of course, it doesn't answer all of our questions. We're going to see more in this series about why the world is no longer as glorious as this chapter describes, but it is a crucial first step. God is good. And as Christians, we've seen it even more, haven't we? The God who didn't just give us trees for food, but the precious bread of life that we have in the Lord Jesus. Who didn't just invite us into relationship with him, but shed his own blood in order to make it possible. In the Lord Jesus, don't we see the goodness of God even more clearly? Uh, In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Not just a reminder of God's bountiful provision in bread and wine, but but of his gracious provision in the death of the Lord Jesus. His body and blood shed for us in order that we might be forgiven. A celebration, a proclamation of the goodness of God. And to proclaim that goodness is our purpose 
not just as the church, as humanity. It's what we were made for. It's what we were commissioned with. We have this extraordinary role of making God known, written into who we are. The world tells us to find our own purpose, to look inside yourself and uncover some subjective sense of meaning, some purpose within your life. But God has given us a purpose, a glorious, privileged purpose to spread the knowledge of him across the world. And whenever we fulfill that purpose, we're being the most human that we could be. Of course, it looks different now, doesn't it? Some people think that we still do something very similar to verse 15, that we spread the knowledge of God by cultivating this world. In some circles, you'll hear the command to work and to keep as a command to invest in things like the arts or devoting ourselves to our careers. But as Luke pointed out for us a couple of weeks ago, that can't be the primary way that we fulfill this divine commission. Don't hear me wrongly, I'm really grateful for the arts. And the right piece of music or film can genuinely lead me to praise God. A job well done can be a testimony to the goodness of God. But if I can break it to us gently, we're not in Eden anymore. Cultivation of this world is not cultivation of God's garden paradise. And as we'll see in a few weeks, it cannot be. It never will be. Even the cultivation that we do do will rarely point to the goodness of God because it doesn't identify our God, the Lord God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. But of course, there are still ways that we can fulfill our great commission. Indeed, by fulfilling the great commission to make disciples of all nations, to tell people about Jesus, our wonderful, good God. As you speak of Jesus, as you proclaim his greatness, as you take part in the events this week, testifying to the goodness of God, you are doing what you were created to do. Indeed, let me encourage you to discuss the questions at the bottom of the handouts, and particularly to chat at food across the road about the opportunities that you've got to fulfill this purpose. In fact, even chatting about God at food over the roads is a great way of spreading the knowledge of him amongst ourselves, doing the most human thing that you can do. But remember, the real Eden project is not going on down in Cornwall or in any of the other places where the new Eden projects are being developed. The real Eden project is going on all around us as we testify to the goodness of the Lord God seen most supremely in the Lord Jesus. And you'll never be more human than when you're rolling up your sleeves and taking part. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, thank you that in, even within this broken world, we can still see, in many different ways, your extraordinary goodness. I praise you most of all for the supreme goodness that you have revealed to us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you'd help each one of us to come to recognize the huge privilege we have of being those who proclaim that goodness throughout the world. And give us great joy in fulfilling that commission, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.